Thank you for joining us today for the ministry of the word at Foundation Church. We pray that what you hear today will be as much of a blessing for you as it was for the people of our congregation. Well, greetings this Lord's Day in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, our Savior, and our King. It is a beautiful day. I'm very thankful to come into a climate-controlled building where we're not faced with the onslaught of uh, heat and humidity. We had, who was it in our family that walked outside and the cup they had in their hand went from one temperature to another and the cup broke? <laughs> You'd think we were living in Antarctica. <laughs> But apparently the air conditioner can make something really cold and outside when it's hot, the extreme difference can cause issues. You know, when we live our lives, we are subject to many different changes, things that happen that we're not really prepared for, things working out not really like we wanted them to, right? We find ourselves going, wait a minute, this is... This isn't where I thought I would be at this time. This is not where I thought uh, my life was going. Psalm 40 reminds us that we need to wait. Everybody say wait. Psalm 40 says this, I waited patiently for the Lord and he inclined unto me and he heard my cry. He brought me up out of a horrible pit out of the miry clay, and he set my feet upon a rock and established my goings. He hath put a new song in my mouth, even praise unto our God, and many shall see it in fear and shall trust the Lord. Blessed is the man that maketh the Lord his trust and respecteth not the proud, nor such as turn aside to lies. Many, O Lord my God, are the wonderful works which thou hast done and thy thoughts which are to usward. They cannot be reckoned up in order unto thee. If I would declare and speak of them, they are more than can be numbered. Sacrifice and offering thou did not desire. My ears hast thou opened. Burnt offerings and sin offerings hast thou not required. Then said I, lo, I come in the volume of the book. It is written of me. I delight to do thy will, O my God. Yea, thy law is within my heart. I have preached righteousness in the great congregation. Lo, I have not refrained my lips, O Lord, and thou knowest. I have not hid thy righteousness within my heart. I have declared thy faithfulness in thy salvation. I have not concealed thy loving kindness and thy truth from the great congregation. Withhold not thy tender mercies from me, O Lord. Let thy loving kindness and thy truth continually preserve me for innumerable evils have compassed me. Mine iniquities have taken hold upon me so that I am not able to look up and they are more than the hairs of my head. Therefore, my heart fails me. Sounds like David is overwhelmed. Everybody say overwhelmed. Be pleased, O Lord, to deliver me, O Lord. Make haste to help me. Let them be ashamed and confounded together that seek after my soul to destroy it. Let them be driven backward and put to shame that wish me evil. Let them be desolate for a reward for their shame that say unto me, Aha! Aha! Let all those that seek thee rejoice and be glad in thee. Let such as love thy salvation say continually, The Lord be magnified. But I... I'm poor and needy, and yet the Lord looks upon me, and thou art my help and my deliverer. Make no tarrying, O oh my God. Let us pray. Lord, we come to the end of ourselves, and we see that we are poor and needy. We come to you today with our hands out, saying as the prodigal did, Lord, if we could just be a, a servant in your house, we'd be better off than we are in the pig pen of our own decisions. And you say, nope, you're not going to come to me as a servant, only you will come to me as my son, as my daughter. Lord, we thank you, Lord, for blessing us and inviting us in and putting a robe on our backs and a ring on our finger for treating us in a way that we don't deserve, for loving us when we did not love you, and for your mercies being new every morning. 
Today we come before you longing to hear your voice and I pray as we go into the word today that we would hear your voice speaking to us as we would lift up our voice in song that our praise would be beautiful to you. And as we offer what we have to give to you, may you use it so that your kingdom might come and your will can be done on this earth as it is in heaven. In Christ's name we pray and all God's people said. Remain standing for just a bit here. I'm going to read to you the first four verses of Psalm 142. It's hard to believe I'm getting this close to the end of the Psalter. My sermon today is called Waiting in a Cave. Psalm 142, I'm going to include the inspired heading because actually a lot of our sermon will be right from it. A Maskil of David when he was in the cave, a prayer. I cried unto the Lord with my voice, with my voice unto the Lord did I make my supplication. I poured out my complaint before him, I showed before him my trouble. When my spirit was overwhelmed within me, when thou knewest my path in the way wherein I walked, they have privately laid a snare for me. I looked on my right hand and behold, there was no man that would know me. Refuge failed me and no man cared for my soul. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we love you. We thank you for your word. And today we're going to thank you for our trials. For if David had not been in the trial of his life here on this day, he would have never written these words. And it is in the fiery furnace of this great trial that this gem came forth to us. In Christ's name we pray and all God's people said, amen. You may be seated. Has anybody here ever been overwhelmed with a problem. Aha, uh -huh, we got one person, maybe two people who, three, we got three people in the room that ha, have been overwhelmed by a problem. Have you ever racked your brain trying to solve the problem, hoping something or someone would give you the solution that you deeply needed? Now, I know for a fact, although some of you didn't raise your hand, I know a bunch of you who have found yourself in a situation where you just don't know what to do. You don't know where to go. You don't know how to feel. You don't know what comes next. And you keep trying everything you can try, but you just can't seem to come to a, an acceptable solution. So what did you do? Or maybe what are you doing right now? You might be in the middle of one of these situations. You look to the left, to the right, you search the internet, you ask all of your friends, your trusted allies, you called people on the phone, you went to people, visit people, hey, let me tell you about my problem, let me tell you about what's going on in my life. Is there anything you can do? What do you think I should do? It seems that your problem is getting worse, more hopeless, because you can't come up with anything that you or anyone you know can imagine to fix your problem. You know, there are problems you cannot fix. It doesn't matter how hard you try. It doesn't matter how smart you are. It doesn't matter how tough you are. It doesn't matter how much you love God. You will find yourself in a place in your life when you cannot even think of anything that would even remotely resemble a solution. You need a job. You've done all you can. You went to the right, you know, programming school and you took a chance. Your friends at church thought was good to change your careers. But now you don't have a job. You don't have an income. Your money's running out. Yes, I'm getting very personal. 
You desperately want a wife. You desperately want a husband. You're suddenly separated from your husband and you're, you're alone. You might be bound in a secret sin. Your marriage maybe is loveless and lonely. Someone very close to you is deeply troubled and they seem to be getting worse. The walls are closing in on you as the solutions that you think of are checked off one by one. Maybe I'll try online dating. No, that's not going to work. All the psychopaths online are crazy. They'll all be serial killers. Maybe someone will magically appear in my life at church or at work, and they're going to be the one. They're going to be the solution so I can start my life. I can start living the life that I want to live. Not likely. A corporate headhunter will call you and make you an offer that you can't refuse and you'll, well, that's not really happening. A new medicine or treatment will make your loved one well. I can't count the number of times that different medical professionals have said, you know what, we think we found this thing and if Andrea will just take this thing or she'll just do this thing or she'll just not eat this thing and we get our hopes up. How many, have you had your hopes up, man? I have mine hopes up. Nope. Yeah, we got excited. Yeah, we told people, yeah, we thought it was gonna be this and, but it wouldn't it work out that way. Maybe you're hoping that your husband that broke your heart will repent of his sins and your life will be whole again. That doesn't really look promising. You try one more time to break that destructive sinful habit that you know can destroy your marriage, maybe your life, but it didn't work again like all of the rest of your efforts. Why try again? You or someone you know is going to win the lottery. You know, I'll tell you what, that may be the number one hope uh, of, of poor people. Maybe all the ad, you know, and do you, you know what they say? You guys ever watched, you ever, you ever seen the uh, commercials for the lottery? Do you know what they say at the very end? Chances are you'll have fun. What are they saying? Fat chance that you're actually going to win. Okay. Chances are you'll have fun. <laughs> oh yeah. It's fun. Giving your money to them in hopes. What? In hopes that the thing you can't solve, maybe you can solve it by giving them a little bit of money, but chances are you'll have fun, but you won't have a solution to your problem. You feel surrounded by hopelessness and helplessness in the darkness of your cave. Waiting in the cave of your dilemma, even with the host of your friends, you feel isolated and alone. No one could possibly understand what you're going through. No one cares. No one really even seems to want to care or to help. The stress is suffocating. So what do you do? Despair? Crack up? Break down? Or just give up and quit trying? What do you do? Or are you going to keep on waiting and keep hoping and give all of it to God because he's not only the one who really knows what you're going through and the only one who cares on the level that you need him to, he's the only one that's able. And the truth is, is that's really where we've got to go. We've got to get to the point where we realize that there is always only one real solution and it's God. The Bible is filled with situation after situation like that tells us we need to wait. Everybody say wait. Pray and wait in your cave like the psalmist did here in Psalm 142. And the only one who can and will always come to you in your time of need, he will hear you and he will come to you. You know, we sit in our caves and we wait on the person that hurt us to come and say they're sorry. 
We sit in our cave and we hope that science is going to give a solution to us. We sit in our cave and we hope that someone's going to win a lottery and hand us some money. And sometimes God sends someone to our life that's got so much money, they don't even care they have so much. And then you go, hey, this might be my solution. Because, I mean, if you got a friend who's got more money, then he knows what to do with it. He doesn't care and he wastes it like water. Maybe he'll waste it on me. That's not the solution. You see, God allows us many times to search because that's what we want to do, Tim. We want to look. We want to find our own solution. But where God wants us to come to is to where we don't have any solutions and neither does anybody else. And that is where we're going today. We are saved by this hope. And this king of hope is not the kind, this kind of hope is not the kind of hope that in the end we're disappointed by. God does not disappoint like everyone and everything else does. Everyone and everything. You go, well, people in my church shouldn't let me down. Yeah, they shouldn't, but they will. My pastor shouldn't let me down. Yeah, I shouldn't, but I probably will. Oh, but my mom, she's my mom. She loves me more than anybody else. She should never let me down, but she will. Everybody say, yes, she will. You go, well, that's not nice. You've just said moms will let you down and pastors will let you down and all your church people's going to let you down. Everybody's going to let you down because they cannot, they are not limitless. They are not the solution to your problem. Wait on the Lord, be of good cheer. He has overcome the world. Wait on the Lord, be encouraged. He is never far from us. Our friends will be at times. They won't know what to think. Wait on the Lord, he will renew your strength. Wait on him and he will never neglect you. He will never be late in coming to your aid. Waiting in a cave and praying to the cave maker is what we are called to do. God made the cave that you're in. And he made you to be in it. Because at a certain point in all of our lives, we have to come to the end of ourselves. And we have to come to the place where we realize nothing in this world and no one in this world is a rock that we can stand on but our God. Anything else that we stand on is sand. As the Apostle Paul, who was well versed in a life of waiting and praying, said, having done all to stand, what's he say to do? Stand. What's he saying? Wait. Don't be weary in well-doing, for in due season you shall reap if you faint not. When we come to God, saving faith is not only that we believe in him, but we believe that he is the rewarder of them that diligently seek him. And you go, well, I don't believe it. You see, the world's disappointed us so much that when it comes to time to believe in God, we don't believe in him. But the deal is, is you go, well, you know what? My mom let me down. My dad let me down. My husband let me down. My church people let me down. My closest friends let me down. And God's going to let me down too. Because that's the way it is. No, it's not like that. No, all of those will let you down, but God will not let you down. You go, well, I'm not so sure about it. I have been let down so many times. I'm just expecting God. No, 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 no. Faith is saying God will not let me down. He's not going to string me out. He's not going to leave me alone. Remember the three Hebrew children? They're like, you know, my God's able to deliver me. But even if he doesn't. It may seem dark and hopeless right now, right now in this little building with these nice people here in Mount Sterling, but God has a way of changing all of that. The sun is still shining outside the cave that God has driven you into with your little band of friends. Do you know Jesus was in a dark cave too? It was darker than anything we can imagine. More abandoned and alone more despised and rejected, more severely injured and in pain, more seemingly without hope. As I was writing this, Jonathan, yeah, he was not only without hope, he was dead. <laughs> Anybody dead here? You're dead. No, Amy, you're not dead yet, okay? 
Are you following me? Je Jesus was dead. He, we're not dead in our cave. There's only one person dead in the cave who comes out. Okay? Jesus was despised and rejected of men. A man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. He was humiliated. He was abandoned. He was betrayed by his friends. And then he was dead. I mean, that's kind of, kind of, God didn't come. It even seemed God hadn't come, right? That's what they were saying. Hey, you know what? He saved others. Can't he save himself? And uh, if he really is the son of God, why doesn't he just do something about this? And even he's, he's even going, what is he? Oh my God, my God. Why have you forsaken me? Had God forsaken him? God had not. And he had. You see, sometimes God leaves us in our cave until we're dead. <laughs> But guess what? He's the resurrection and the life. I mean, don't you think Lazarus and Martha, remember them? They were like going, you know what? What good is it to be friends with the son of God if he won't come over when I'm sick? I'm dying over here. Can't you send a note to the son of God who raises people and changes people and walks on water and is obviously the son of God. Would you tell him to come to our house? I mean, Tim, could you imagine this? You know, you know, I mean, I know a guy. I know a guy who like, he, he puts mud on people's faces and they can see. <laughs> I know a guy who, who talks to storms and they're quiet. Yeah. Well, you're sick. You should probably call him. Yeah, I'm calling him. And you get out your little notepad and you send him a letter. And you're, hey, Jesus, come on. Come on to Bethel, please. I'm not feeling too good. And, and you're dead and you're in a cave. And you've been in there four days and your flesh is rotting and your sisters are crying. Do you see what I'm saying? But did Jesus not come through for Lazarus? Everybody say he, he, he really came through. But Jesus was in a cave darker than anything we can imagine. And when I ask if anyone's here dead yet, maybe you think you are, maybe you are, maybe you're dead like Lazarus. I don't know. But even if you are, guess what? We got the way maker even out of even being dead and being in a cave. You see wrapped in a linen cloth and the finality and the finished with all that he could do. But God came to him in his cave and he brought him forth king of kings and lord of lords. We wait and pray in our caves to the one whose power was glorified from the darkness of a cave in Jerusalem 2,000 years ago and keeps coming into our darkness, bringing us the light of his glorious resurrection power again and again. He has come to take the whole world out of this dark and hopeless cave and he will do it for you today. You might go, that just sounds like a, something somebody says. Oh yeah, it may sound like something somebody says, but they're saying it because it's true. I'm going to, I see some note takers out there. You want to write some notes down? Lamentations chapter three, verse 25. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. Psalm 27, 14, wait for the Lord, be strong and let your heart take courage, wait on the Lord. Psalm 37, 7, be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Isaiah 25, 9, it will be said on that day, behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. Isaiah chapter 30, verse 18, therefore the Lord waits to be gracious to you, and therefore he exalts himself to show mercy to you. For the Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are those who wait for him. Isaiah 33, 2, O Lord, be gracious to us, for we wait for you. Be our arm every morning, our salvation in the time of trouble. Isaiah 49, 23, kings shall be forever, shall be Kings shall be your foster fathers, queens, your nursing mothers with their faces to the ground. They will bow to you. They will lick the dust of your feet. They will know that I am the Lord. Those who wait for me shall not be put to shame. Isaiah 64 verse four from of old, no one is heard or perceived by ear. No one has seen God besides you who acts for those who wait for him.
Are you waiting for God or are you just waiting on the next bad thing? Are you looking out the mouth of your cave for God, looking for him, or are you looking for another enemy? Micah 7, 7, but as for me, I will look to the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. We may never heard the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego if God had not delivered them out of the fiery furnace. But I love what they said. If God doesn't come, it ain't because he can't. My God can deliver me. What did they say? They, they believed in God. That's what we got to be. Psalm 25, 3, indeed, none who wait for you shall be put to shame. They shall be ashamed who are wantonly treacherous. Pastor Mark, you've been preaching for a half hour. You haven't even read the first verse. It's all right. Psalm 142 starts with the inspired heading. A maskil of David. You remember what a maskil is? When he was in the cave. It doesn't say what cave. And then it says a prayer. If you remember a maskil is a proverb or a great lesson learned. And don't gloss over this in the inspired heading. It took a very long time for David to learn this lesson. So we can probably take a few more minutes of thinking about it. It took him two decades to learn the lesson of Psalm 142. It says of David, his name is listed here as the author of 73 of the Psalms and the Psalter. Two more are mentioned in the New Testament, bringing in total up to 75. I know I've told you that lots of times, but the Septuagint actually has him listed as the author of 10 more of the Psalms. But he is the author of the next three Psalms in a row that we will be going through, and that'll be it. It says that David wrote this when... He was in the cave. Now, that's important, and that's why we're talking about this whole cave situation. He wrote this when he was in the cave, when he was kind of at the end of it all. If you ever read anything written by Bonhoeffer, read what he wrote when he was in prison and they were about to kill him. He knows what's about to happen. And when you're in a cave or you're in prison and you're about to die, what you have to say is pretty important. Much of David's life is a lesson in waiting and praying for God to do what he has said that he will do. We love to hear the many stories of David without considering the deep waters of turmoil God led him through and to on his journey to the man of God that he would establish forever upon the throne of the kingdom through his son, Jesus. You know, we call Jesus the son of God, but Jesus was also called the son of David. From the time that David was anointed king by Samuel in Bethlehem until his coronation as king of all of Israel was approximately 22 years. Anybody up for one of those 22-year trials? You, you up for that, Ash? You up for a 22-year lesson that ends with the writing of a seven-verse song? You know, when the man wrote, It is well with my soul, he had lived his whole life up to the point and his children were you know, killed at sea. His life led up to this horrible trial, the, the great fire of Chicago, the financial loss that followed after the death of his children. They led up to a song that we sing. You go, I don't know if I really want to be a songwriter. <laughs> I don't want that. But there are some songs you hear and you go, Somebody must have went through something wretched. Right? Remember that song about the Lord being good, that newer song, right? He's always good. I remember hearing that song and my heart aching. He's always good. You guys know the song I'm talking about? What's the guy's name? Peterson or... Huh? Andrew Peterson. I won't tell the story, but... You hear a song like that about God being always good and he's, 
he's singing about all of the horrible things in the New Testament that didn't really seem good. And I'm going, oh, what did it take to write that song? 22 years of waiting and praying and hoping that God would do what he had promised he would do. You see, God keeps his promises. And God kept this promise too, but sometimes there's a whole lot more to the story. <laughs> he killed Goliath, he defeated the Philistines again and again, and then he was made king of Israel like Joseph of old. His ascension to the throne of power came through a lot of very difficult and very seemingly hopeless days. And what made him a man after God's own heart was that he kept waiting and he kept believing in the cave of his 22-year trial. The inspired heading of the psalm says it was written by David in the cave. It's kind of funny to me that it doesn't say what cave. And that it was written as a prayer to God. So, I mean, we got all we need here, right? It was written in the darkness of a very, very desperate situation. The scriptures have David spending time in two different caves at two different times in the story of his life. And they're actually pretty close together. First Samuel 22 has him in the cave of Adullam as he's running from Saul, who is trying to kill him. But he isn't there that long. And then he runs to another cave in a place called Engedi in 1 Samuel chapter 24. Most scholars believe this psalm was written in reference to the cave of Engedi. And I do believe it was as well. And I think it makes all the sense in the world. So let's look at these 22 years quickly that led up to this prayer. You see, the story covers 19 chapters of the Bible. Isn't that amazing? That one story and one lesson of the Bible takes 19 chapters, Joy, to tell. And you go, well, uh, well, the whole story of Noah is like six verses long or, you know, you know what I mean? It's like, what? But you get stories like Joseph's story. You get stories like David's story. And you're like, you're killing me, Lord. For 19 chapters, we're getting pummeled on David was anointed, but he isn't king yet. And this happens and that happens and he isn't king yet. And he's running and he's dying. And he's, ah. It's a rough story. All to come what? Come down to the lesson of Psalm 142. Because David prayed when he was in that cave. Must be an important lesson. You guys ready to learn it today? In 1 Samuel chapter 15, God has severed his relationship with Saul because Saul's disobedience. God sends Samuel on a mission to anoint Saul's successor in Bethlehem. However, David was such an unlikely candidate that even his dad overlooks him and doesn't bring him to the house when the prophet comes. He wasn't even present. Oh yeah, he's an afterthought. Oh yeah, I do have this other son, but he's out there keeping the sheep. You know, he's, he's my youngest. He's out there, you know, he's... He's, he's not the one. Samuel hears from God that none of the boys present are there and asks for more. Occupied with the duties of a young shepherd, David tends to his father's sheep, inconspicuous and overlooked. Samuel sees him, anoints him king, and tells him he's going to replace Saul. And little does David know his anointing will be the beginning of a long and challenging journey of triumphs and trials. The next time we hear of David in 1 Samuel 16, he is chosen to be Saul's private musician and armor bearer. When he, he's like, man, I'm already in the king's house. I mean, I, I, I'll probably be made king any day now. I'm right here. I'm, I'm seeing the king every day. I'm playing music for him and, and I'm right here. I'm kind of in the court, you know. Now dwelling at the king's palace, it would seem that David is just a step away from ruling Israel. Imagine what he was thinking. Wow, this is happening much faster maybe than I thought that it would. Even so, due to his young age, he remains unable to even join the front lines of Israel's army and engage in battles against the Philistines. Many times in our life we think we can see what's coming next for us, but we should not get set on these kinds of things. They don't always work out 
the way we think they will. How many of you are here and the plan of your life that you thought going forward has been suddenly changed? Yeah, lots of people, me included. I won't get into what my plans were for the rest of my life, but I can tell you right now, I felt like, you know, just when I was ready to, you know, do whatever I thought I was going to do. And, and, you know, you just kind of laugh at yourself. I mean, guys, you can't take yourself too seriously. Like God has a way of just wrecking you and running you over and, and, and helping you more than you can even imagine. Everybody say, thanks be to God. So what does David do? He continues to fulfill his role as a shepherd, right? Saul's troubled spirit is soothed once in a while. He's kind of feeling pretty good about it. He's perfecting his art as a musician. He's writing a few songs and psalms that'll one day be in the Psalter. And then of course we know what happens. He, he goes out there to check on his brothers at war and he, you know, he sees Goliath. What's he do, guys? This is it. He gets his sling. He throws it. The giant comes down. He cuts his head off. He lifts it up. Israel's cheering. He's like, this is probably it. (laughs) I mean, like, I'm not even wearing any armor. I got like the coolest sword in the whole world. And I'm holding the head of the guy's heads almost weighs as much as he does. The people fall in love with the giant killer and uh, the king himself holds him in high regard. Saul is like, man, this guy's awesome. I'm going to just make him, you know, I'm going to put him in the army. I mean, if he can kill Goliath, he can probably now go to battle. He wasn't allowed to go to battle, but now he can go. But if David's music calms Saul's trouble, it's the songs of praise of David's victories that ignite Saul's consuming jealousy. The women begin singing a song in 1 Samuel 18. Be careful when people start praising you. I can tell you right now, when people start praising you, get ready because people will start hating you. Soon as people start praising you, other people will start hating you. The woman, Saul has slain his thousands. Saul was loving that. That's right, I've slain my thousands. But David... What, 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 David's his slain his 10,000s. Now Saul's not real happy. I mean, you'd think he'd be okay, right? But no, that's not how it's working out. You see, David could see the sun rising, he thought. The dawn of the time of him being king was just over the horizon. Yeah, there was a fire over the horizon, but it wasn't the morning of his kingship. It was a raging inferno of jealousy. When God is at work in your life and you think all is well and it's going to keep working out well for you, know that the devil and many others hate you. God will use them to make you better. But in the meantime, get ready for some fiery darts to start a flying. King Saul burns with jealousy as he hears the women sing. He smiles at first when he hears about his thousands that he's killing. But when he hears that David kills 10,000, he wants to kill him. And he begins burning with envy, seeking to kill David through covert means, making it appear as an accident. But when that doesn't work, what's he do? He just comes right out and takes a spear and hurls it at David. What do you think David's thinking now? What? (laughs) I was thinking things were working out good for me and a a spear just whacked into a wall beside me and almost killed me. And then Saul's like, yeah, it was temporary insanity. Temporary insanity. And David's like, Do you think David was like walking like this around Saul or like this? I think he was walking like this the whole time. Like, yeah, love you. Yeah, it was a total accident. I just got carried away. just threw that. I was mad, you know. Good, Good thing I'm not mad anymore. We're good, David. This must have been very scary for David. The next act in the story was going to be, he said, Now, how about you? Is that how you feel or when you felt when your troubles began? You thought to yourself, certainly not. This can't be what God has planned for me. No, 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 no. I was going to do this. We were going to do that. I I can see it clearly. And it's like, no, that's that's not really what's going to happen. It feels very familiar to me. 
Next, Saul attempts to orchestrate David's demise by sending him into battles that seem impossible to win, assuming that his zeal will ultimately lead him into his demise. You know, the devil will try every which way in the world to destroy you. People who are jealous of you will try that way as well. They'll even let you destroy yourself. They'll hope you do that. Saul even offers David his daughter Michael's hand in marriage. And that's a whole long story. He had offered him another woman, his older daughter. That's a whole long story. I, and, but he ends up getting this other daughter who is in love with David. And it seems that Saul knows that she is a bad seed. And he's like, oh yeah, I think I want to get this daughter out of my house and get him married off to David because she's gonna be, she'll, she'll kill him if, if nobody else does. So then he says this, he said, all right, on condition you can marry my daughter, but you got to get 100 Philistines and kill them and cut off part of their body and bring it to me. And of course, what's David do? He kills 200. And Saul's thinking, well, maybe during this 100 Philistine thing, he would die. But now what's he done? Now he's even more beloved, right? Maybe it's all good now, David thought. David's like, he told me to walk a mile and I walked two. He told me he wanted 100 Philistines. I killed 200. Now he's really going to love me. See, this is what David was thinking. Not how it worked out. Maybe Saul's going to respect me. Think again, young David. Men like Saul have no fear of God, only the love and admiration of others. They love when people think they're great and they love power. He was losing both and David was the cause, he thought. Now God had told him that he was going to lose his kingdom, but he did not believe God. Saul's jealousy becomes public. He instructs Jonathan and his servants to kill David. Jonathan intercedes on David's behalf. He loves him. It grants him a temporary reprieve. But when other battles arise, resulting in David's triumphal victory, Saul attempts to kill him, intensify. Saul is trying to kill him at every turn while he's trying to pretend they're friends. And you might go, I thought those people were my friends. No, they've just been looking for a way to kill you and they're trying to find a way to kill you and they found out they couldn't kill you one way, they're going to kill you another, they're going to smile while they kill you. Oh, come here, I got a nice meal prepared for you. It's laced with arsenic. <laughs> come here, stand, stand on the edge of this cliff, look at the beautiful view. I love you, brother. Sorry. I got a little carried away there. Give me a moment to, uh, give me a moment to compose myself. Saul endeavors to pin David to the wall with his spear again. He then dispatches his men to arrest David when he misses. And when David takes off running, you know what he does? He gives his wife away to another guy. David realized that living and working alongside Saul is not feasible. He must be a fugitive until God provides the solution. So he's going to find some good friends. Folks, friends are not your answer. <laughs> your relatives are not your answer. David flees to Nob where the priest Ahimelech offers him Assistance. Sadly, this act of kindness cost Ahimelech, his fellow priests, their lives, and Saul kills them all. Remember that sermon I preached about the dirty dog Doeg who turns in these priests? How would you feel about that? You thought you had a wife, but now you don't. You thought you went to a friend who helped you out, and now they're in trouble. Now they're dead. Now it's your fault. His union to, da to Saul's daughter had put him in the family of Saul. He thought that might be the thing that would get him the support of Israel so he could be king, but that didn't work. He wanted to be king because God said he would be, but he would still have to wait. This had to be very difficult to see past. It must have been a wretched trial. Guys, everybody say 22 years of trial. And I thought David was just this great king. Yeah, he was a great king with a lot of great trouble. Knowing Saul's out to kill him, David takes refuge in the cage of Adullam, 
where he is joined by 400 outcasts and disillusioned people in Israel. Despite numerous close calls, God continually delivers David from Saul's clutches in his attempt to reconcile with David. David risks for his own safety. However, Saul persists in viewing David as his enemy. David keeps thinking Saul is the key to him becoming king. You see, sometimes we do that too. We look to Saul. Maybe Saul's the answer. If I can just make peace with them, then what? Then maybe I'll be king. Can you see what's going on here? He runs, but the place isn't a place. And this is what he said. You'll see this in the song. He said, my refuge failed me. My friends failed me. Everything I could do failed me. And this is what he prays in this cave. He finally comes to the end of all he can think of and all he can do. And he realizes he can do nothing. It's the place every story in the Bible comes to when the story gets good. During his flight from Saul, David does not neglect his duty to the people. He even goes into battle against the Philistines. He delivers a key city of Judah. He carries out raids against Judah's enemies. He shares his spoils with the people. He thought, maybe I'll win the people over. Maybe all the people will rise up against Saul and make me king. I'll beat the Philistines. I'll beat their enemies. I'll give them money and spoils and maybe they will save me. Everybody say, the people didn't save David. You see what's happening here? David is going around like a pinball, going from the people to save him and Saul to save him and Michael to save him and, and his friends to save him and, and a hideout to save him. And none of it's working. Maybe if he does this, he will win the favor of the king as God has said that he would be, but it doesn't work. God uses it in the long run. But this is yet another thing that David tried that did not accomplish what he wanted most. He didn't want anything horrible or self-serving. He only wanted to be the king that God said he would be. He wanted a, a wife to give him a son who could be his heir. And now through his own efforts, he had neither wife nor friend. His closest friends and family visit him at Adulam, most likely trying to give him counsel, but there was nothing to do but to keep running. They found him there. They knew he was there. His enemies found Once his family found out he was there and they visited him, now his enemies and he had to run from there. Over the rest of the time, his band grows to 600 men. But what are they among the thousands of Judah and all of Israel? Saul decides once and for all, he will pick 3,000 chosen men. He will offer magnificent bounties and rewards for those that lead him to David and he sets out on an errand to end the madness once and for all. There's a lesson here that Saul will need to learn too. It doesn't matter how many people are on your side. You cannot resist God's will. He thought through his own power and might he could kill David and even overturn God's will. He never had this kind of power to begin with. Remember when, remember when Jesus is talking to Pilate and he goes, don't you understand? I got the power to let you go. And Jesus said, no, you don't. You, your, your life is in my hands. Jesus said, no, it's not. All power comes from God. It was at this very moment after years of difficulty and confusion, the walls literally closing in around him at En Gedi that he prayed the prayer of Psalm 142. The mighty saw head and shoulders above all of Israel, the king of God's holy nation and 3,000 of his choicest fighters surrounding him. There was no way out. He's in a cave that apparently had no back door. If they were discovered, they were dead. And David wrote these words when he had nothing else he could do. I cried unto the Lord with my voice and my voice unto the Lord did I make my supplication. Our lesson today is call on the Lord with what you think might be your last breath. Let the sounds of your petition and supplication entreating God to come to your aid, and when we call, he will answer. You might say, all I can do right now is pray, and I'll say, thank God. Thank God that's all you can do, because it's probably the best thing you could do. You might say, you might know that's where you were headed all along when you finally get there, and when all of your efforts to accomplish what you hope for, and you surrender to God with no hope of your own, 
This is the soil where real faith and hope spring up. It's the kindling for the fire in your cave. Light up your cave with prayer. Verse two, I poured out my complaint before him and I showed before him my trouble. You are filled to the top. You have taken all you can and you can't take any more. So what do you do? You pour it out. You pour out your complaints. Tell him about your trouble. He knows them anyway. But it's time to let it all out to him in prayer and let it pour. Cry out. Cry and pray. You won't be sorry or disappointed. It's what David did. Can you imagine this? And as I was writing this, I was thinking about this. Caves echo. Caves make noise. There's enemies outside, Sister Joy. You think David, he said, I, I did this with my voice. I did it with my voice. He, he, he emphasized it by saying it twice. What's he doing? David didn't pray inside. He didn't silently meditate in his heart. He began using his voice. This voice that was known for its singing. This voice that called out to Goliath, this powerful voice. He begins to pray. And what do you think the guys around him are starting to do? You know, there are enemies around the cave, David. You need to quiet down, David. David, quiet down. Oh, God! Salt is outside and there's 3,000. Please, David, shut up. Oh, really? His mighty men by telling him to be quiet. Quit your crying. Quit your praying. Pray quietly. But I believe like blind Bartimaeus did in Jericho. Do you guys remember him? It said they told him to shut up. He was embarrassing himself. It said, but he cried the louder. Jesus, thou son of David, have mercy on me. Be quiet. And he said, he cried the louder. Jesus, thou son of David, have mercy on me. When David said he cried, he's not saying that he silently meditated and said, oh Lord. No, David starts pouring it out, out loud. And you go, well, uh, God doesn't really need that. God isn't the one where, that, that needs anything. You do. Pour it out. Get loud with God. You go, well, my enemies might hear me. Yeah, they might. They might. This must have come out like a flood to God, but it must have been loud. They could hear Saul's men, no doubt, surrounding them, tramping around, searching every cave and bush for David. No, David says, I'm praying. Don't let anyone quiet you for fear the devil will hear you. They caught Daniel praying and what happened? They threw him in a lion's den. But you don't catch somebody praying and God lets you be eaten by a lion. I don't believe it. The Hebrew children would not pray to the golden image, but prayed to God and they were thrown in the fiery furnace. Daniel was not eaten and Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego walked with the son of God in the flames. Don't be afraid. Pray. Verse three, when my spirit was overwhelmed within me, then thou knew my path in the way wherein I walked. Had they laid privately a snare for me? David is overwhelmed with fear. He's run everywhere there was to run and everywhere he's gone, there were traps set for him. He feels like a hunted stag with the horse and the hound chasing him relentlessly, tired and overwhelmed and thirsty, done running. He has, does all that he can do now, he prays. This is often the destination God has set for us. He waits until we're backed into a corner. We've come to the end of ourselves. We know there's no way out or over. Perfect. Now is the very best time to pray. It is the time we mean our prayers the most. The Bible says the effectual, fervent prayer of the righteous man avails much. And we often mean it when we don't have anything else we can do. Verse four, I looked on my right hand and behold, there was no man that would know me. Refuge failed me. See what he's doing? He's going down the list of all the things that failed him. His friends could not save him. His family couldn't save him. The arm of flesh faded as it always does when we lean upon it. When he needed help and care, there was none who would and could offer it. People are not the answer. When we run out of people, we will run to God. Are you there yet? Have you run out of your people yet? Are you in the cave or do you still have a place or two that you think you can find refuge? Do you still have a person or two you think is the answer? Well, maybe when you're done going to them, you'll find yourself alone in the cave or maybe you could just quit right now. At the end of your journey, you will learn what others think or what 
you think they will do for you means very little. Our total allegiance must be to the one whose solid rock will never leave us or forsake us, who will not turn to sand like men who do when troubles come. Why should we be so overwhelmed when others do not come to our aid? They cannot save us. Only God can do that. Verse five, I cried unto the Lord and I said, thou art my refuge. See what he says before, my refuge didn't work. My friends didn't work. What's he come to? Oh, God's my refuge. God's my friend. God's my deliverer. God's the only place and the only person. The only, do you see where he's coming here? It took David running out of places to run to remember that God was his refuge. No state, no city, no country is our refuge. Christ alone is our strong tower, our mighty fortress where the righteous run into and are saved. Verse six, attend to my cry for I am brought very low. Deliver me from my persecutors for they are stronger than I. He could probably hear their feet scuffling in the sand and the rocks outside. And you'll notice as we get to verse seven, he ain't saved in his prayer. David has been humbled from his heroic accolades of Goliath's death, from those who bragged on his amazing musical abilities and all the women who sang about his courage. It was the spirit of God that had done these great things and perhaps he needed to brought low to remember who had called him from the flocks of sheep into the holy war for the world. God was making David a man after his own heart through a 22 year trial. God would not compete with the adoration of the crowd or the false pride of David built on God's power and not his own merit, he would bring him very low indeed into the darkness of the cave, hiding like an animal pursued with no one or nowhere to run. It was in that cave that he came to himself and saw himself for what he was and looked up to God and called upon him. This is where God is taking all of us. Those who call upon his name, he is a jealous God. He loves us and he wants all, everybody say all. He wants all our allegiance, no matter what it takes, he will make you. To a man or a woman after his heart. Last verse, bring my soul out of prison that I may praise thy name. The righteous shall compass me about for thou shalt deal bountifully with me. He begins to see instead of the cave as his refuge. What does he see it as? It's a prison. The places we run to to save ourselves become a prison. They were never a refuge to begin with. At the end of the prayer, the last verse of the psalm, we see how David began to see the cave as his prison, not a refuge. God had become his refuge like Paul and Silas who prayed and sang praises to God in their dungeon. David was ready in, <clears throat> for the earth to quake. Break me out, O God, and I will praise you. That's all I want. Break me out. And my life will be surrounded by your beautiful people. See how his enemies were surrounding him, Tim. And he's saying, Lord, if you get me out of this, instead of being surrounded by these enemies, I will surround myself with good, lovely, beautiful Christian people. David was right where God needed him to be. And the psalm ends, and we don't know what happened to David, but the Israelites sure did. And you do too, because you can read 1 Samuel chapter 24. As David prays this prayer and comes to this place, the last thing he expects he will see happens. Saul walks right in the cave with him, Ash. And instead of coming at him with the sword, this is a little bit of my imagination, he turns around. He's come in the cave to go potty. Now you might think to yourself, David at first thought that God hadn't heard him and Saul walks in the cave and we're found. But Saul turns around, no doubt. I don't know if he takes off his robe. I don't know what he does, but he ain't in there for just a little bit. He's in there for a minute. We're not gonna get into that too much. But he's in the cave and David has the ability and the time to sneak up on him and to cut a piece of his robe off. So he probably wasn't in there. And here we have David going. Could you imagine David is right next to Saul. David has a knife in his hand and David can kill Saul. But David is a man who has realized Saul was not the answer to me being king. So what does he do? He rises up in faith and he says, I'm not going to kill him. Even though I can, 
I don't want to put myself in as king. If I'm going to be king, God's going to make me king. See, this is, this is a moment in David's life where he has come to the place of understanding that nothing he could do, not killing Saul, that's not, that's not going to be the solution. He had to wait on God. I know I've been preaching a while. It's all right. David's men said to him, behold, this is the day of which the Lord said to you, behold, I will hand over your enemy to you and you shall do to him as seems good to you. Is that what David does? Everybody say, David doesn't do that. David arose in the darkness. He stealthily cut off the hem and the edge of Saul's robe. Afterward, David's conscience bothered him. What kind of man is this? It bothered him. It bothered him that he had even cut the robe off. He thought maybe this, this was me, this is my own effort here. Maybe I shouldn't have done this. He said to his men, the Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my master, the Lord's anointed, to put out my hand against him since he is the anointed of the Lord. Everybody say, all powers from God. So it wasn't up to him to take out Saul. It was up to who? It was up to God. So David strongly rebuked his men with these words and he did not let them rise up against Saul and Saul got up. He left the cave and he went on his way. David also got up and went out of the cave and he called after Saul, my Lord, the king. Now, guys, that's got to be rough. He's calling him the, my Lord, the king. Saul looked and behold, David bowed with his face to the ground. He laid himself face down. This man who's obviously trying to kill him, who hates him, who has no reason in the world but jealousy. And David does what? He bows. What's he, is he bowing to Saul or to God? To God. Why do you listen to the words of men who say David seeks to harm you? He thought maybe others had been talking bad about him. He didn't know what was in Saul's heart. Behold, your eyes have seen today how the Lord has given you into my hand in the cave. Some told me to kill you, but I spared you. I said I would not reach out my hand against the Lord's anointed. Look, my father, indeed, see the hem of your robe. He was, he was his father-in-law. He was married to his daughter. He's still calling him his father. Even though he'd given away his wife. Since I cut off the hem of your robe and didn't kill you, know and understand without question, there's no evil or treason in my hands. You see, it wasn't evil or treason that was causing it. It was jealousy. It was David's goodness. When you go through things, people will generally go, well, what did you do to cause that to happen? Well, maybe they didn't do anything. Maybe they did good and people didn't like it. I've not sinned against you, though you are lying in wait to take my life. May the Lord judge between me and you and may the Lord avenge me on you. But my hand shall not be against you. As the proverb of the ancients say, out of the wicked comes wickedness, but my hand shall not be against you. And then he humbles himself. Who are you pursuing? A dead dog? A flea? I'm nobody. May the Lord judge and render judgment between me and you. And when David had finished these words, Saul said, is this your voice, my son, David? Then Saul raised his voice and he wept. You're more righteous and upright. You know, do you know the enemies of God and your enemies sometimes will even come to a place like this where they know what's right, but ultimately they do what's wrong. Saul uh, did not really truly repent here. You have declared today the good you have done to me. For when the Lord put me into your hand, you didn't kill me. For if a man finds his enemy, will you let him go? And I'll kind of move through this. You know, later on, Saul is still out to get David. He doesn't keep his word. David finds Saul sleeping. I don't know if you know the story or not, but he has another chance to kill him, but he doesn't. After nearly 15 years of waiting, which included fleeing from Saul and enduring countless trials, David finally learns of Saul's death and demise of his sons, and it breaks his heart. Seeking divine guidance, David inquires of the Lord. He directs him to go to Judah, and there the men of Judah anoint David king. But do you know, 
Abner had already made Ishbosheth the son of Saul, king of all of Israel. And so it was seven more years of waiting. 22 years. At every step and in every cave, he waited on God to save him from his circumstances. He would not kill Saul. Whatever cave you find yourself in today, wait on God, cry out to him and he will answer. Maybe not how you want or even when you want, but he will answer. And I'll say it again, wait on the Lord. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we get the message loud and clear, this great lesson, this 22 year lesson that teaches us to wait. Give us patience, give us wisdom. Lord, let us run out of all of our places to hide and people to run to if that's what it takes for us to have a singular allegiance to you and your word. Put us in a cave if in that cave we learn to wait on you. In Christ's name we pray and all God's people said, amen. Thank you so much for joining us today. I pray your time with us was very encouraging. If it was, consider sending us a note and also consider partnering with us. 